Hello and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Today's guest rejoining us on the podcast is Ian Villancourt, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's the author of a number of books, including one on the Psalms, which I think we spoke to him just recently about. He joins us this time to talk about his new Crossway book, The Dawn of Redemption, The Story of the Pentateuch and the Hope of the Gospel. Ian, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, Brent. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you back with us. Uh, and I should say that uh, our other our other Ian, Ian Reed Rido, is not able to be with us today. Um, I think he's just busy. So there we go. He sends his apologies. Now, Ian, this interview, I think, is going to comprise some of my favorite questions about the Pentateuch and all sorts of fascinating things that came out of your study of it. First of all, can I ask you, what does the word Pentateuch mean? Well, it's a Greek word. It's a, you know, I say in the preface, it's a fancy word of Greek origin that refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I believe, you know, Penta is five and uh, Tuke is related to book, but it's five books. And what are the five books? Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All the really fun bits of scripture, I think. I love them. Well, the most foundational, right? The, they, the well, this is now this is the point because this is the very point you make. How, in fact, I think you use this phrase, the grand drama of redemption, which I loved. Now, how is the Pentateuch the first act? You say it's the first act in the grand drama of redemption. Okay, well, the Bible ever, you know, we've got creation, Genesis 1, and we've got Eden, Genesis 2 and 3. Um, this narrative. And in the second half of the Eden narrative, Genesis 3, we've got the fall into sin. And Genesis 3.15 is the first glimmer of gospel hope in the midst of that bleakness. And where God promises that the descendant of the woman will crush the head of the descendant of the serpent and the descendant of the serpent will crush the head, will crush the heel of the descendant of the woman. And, you know, theologians have called that the proto-gospel, the first glimmer of gospel hope in the Bible. But that sets a trajectory for the rest of the scriptures right up to the end of Revelation that um, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of God um, breaking into the lives of sinful, undeserving people and redeeming them out of sin and slavery to sin and slavery physically to himself, making them his special people. And so the Bible as a whole is a story of redemption. And so the Pentateuch is the first act in this grand drama of redemption. Yes. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great phrase. Now, it's, um, it's, it's just the first part. It's part one of the story. That's why I call it act one. Yes, absolutely. Now, why does the Pentateuch begin with the creation account? Well, <laughs> We could, we could say a lot of different things about that, right? But um, when most of us, like I grew up in the public school system here in Canada, and I remember in grade four when my teacher taught on evolution and I came home, for, it's in the book, it's an illustration in the book, but I came home for supper that night and my parents um, asked, what did you learn in school today? And I said, we were descended <laughs> from monkeys and the earth is billions of years old. And uh, they kind of cleared their throat, you know, from a Christian home and said, well, we don't believe that. And I, I was jarred and, you know, my teacher commanded respect. I'm, you're, you're saying don't respect my teacher. What do you mean? And, but the default for someone like me who's raised in that is to read Genesis 1 and 2 and ask the question, how does this relate to the theory of evolution? 
but we need to think in terms of who are the first readers of the of the Pentateuch and you know that the, the entry point is creation. Well, those first readers are the wilderness wanderers in the book of Numbers. And while the ink is still wet, as it were, Aaron's probably reading these words Moses is writing and they're hearing this, but they're the ones that have received the covenants. And they're the ones that have just experienced the exodus from Egypt. And so on the exodus front, they're they're seeing that, well, God created, you know, brought order out of disorder and created something out of nothing and, you know, filled the, uh, brought form to the formless and filled the emptiness. But in the plagues in Egypt, um, there's a correspondence that there's a temporary and piecemeal um, return of Egypt to pre-creation chaos. And so there's this, wow, Yahweh flexed his muscles, and this is what he just did for us. And there's also a kind of a, a sense of a showdown with the gods of Egypt. If if um, Egypt is going to worship the sun god, well, Elohim in Genesis 1 created the sun, moon, and stars. And, and you know, if Egypt's going to worship the Nile as a source of life, well, it's Elohim is the one who separated the waters and the land. And, and so he's not a regional deity. He's overall. And if Egypt's going to worship these things, he's more powerful than them. He showed that as he flexed his muscles in the Exodus. And he's, he's narrating that as he's saying he's the creator of all these things. But what I argue in the book is even more than those two things, um, the reason Genesis 1, the, the story of creation comes first, is, and, you know, theologically, what those people heard is, Yahweh has made covenants with us and they are they are filled with grand promises. And not only have we just experienced the greatest act of redemption in the entire Old Testament in the Exodus, but we've also read Genesis 1 and the first thing we think is the God of creation is the God who made covenants with us. Therefore, his promise is sure and he will not fail. And he's, he's over it all. And so it's it's just a wonderful when you start reading it in, and I'm not at all saying, oh, put your head in the sand and don't think about how Genesis one relates to the theory of evolution. No, think through those. I do that with my fourth, you know, a Hebrew course I teach. We do have four views on the historical Adam and discuss it in a seminar format. I think that's important, but that's not the first thing we should ask. The first thing we should ask is theologically why is why it's there. And that's why in my in the book and in my Old Testament intro and my Pentateuch classes, we we talk about the theology, the theological reasons first. Mm. Uh, you make a fascinating connection between Eden and the tabernacle, uh, which I loved. Uh, what is the connection between Eden and the tabernacle? For surely there is. Well, there's many, but uh, the, the the ones that come to mind from the book are, you know, just the fact that the entrance to the tabernacle is on the east. When you when you read the story of the Garden of Eden, it's the cherubim and flaming sword are guarding the way to the tree of life on the east. And so they the exit was on the east. So um, the tabernacle was set up in such a way. And you think the Garden of Eden is Yahweh Elohim is dwelling specially with his people, among his people. You know, they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the wind of the day, or however we want to translate that phrase. And um, that was just a common thing. And so the tabernacle, you think of the Holy of Holies, is where Yahweh is dwelling, most powerfully present among his people in the center of his people. But the fact that the entrance is on the east is a, is a symbolic of a 
the first step in a re-entry of Eden that's actually completed in the book of Revelation. Can I say one or two more things? Say as much as you like. Okay, yeah. Uh, You think of the cherubim and a flaming sword guarding the way to the tree of life. Well, what's on the curtain? What's embroidered into the curtain that separates the holy place from the inner sanctuary where Yahweh dwells most powerfully, the, the most holy place? It's cherubim that are that are um, embroidered into that curtain. And it's just this, the high priest once a year is able to penetrate those cherubim and enter into the presence of Yahweh, bearing the people's names on his chest and shoulders. And um, so, or the, the tribes and stuff. But um, so that's another one. Uh, another one that comes to mind is just the enclosed nature of Eden and the enclosed nature of the tabernacle that when when I hear garden, like I grew up in suburbs in Canada, and when I hear the word garden with Garden of Eden, I think, okay, we're in, we're in suburbs with our little cookie cutter plots, and we've got a little dirt plot out front with flowers in it, geraniums and and maybe some uh, perennials, whatever. And but in in Hebrew thought and in other eras, a garden is an enclosed place. And so I like to use the illustration. I, I don't think this is in the book, but um, tobacco country. I, I live near tobacco farms, about an hour from me, forty five minutes from me in Tilsonburg, Ontario. And when I when my wife and I first moved to this area and we're exploring, we'd go, we'd see these tobacco fields. And they had um, cedars planted all along the perimeter. And that's because what we learned later is tobacco plants are sensitive and the cedars are meant to protect the plants from the elements. And a garden in, in Hebrew thought and in other eras is, a, um, is an enclosed safe place. And so the tabernacle is just that. You've got this outer court and the you know the courtyard that you enter in through gates and it's an enclosed place and then at the center of it Yahweh's dwelling so those are a couple parallels but eden the eden narrative is is um intentionally meant to call to mind i mean sorry the tabernacle description the t- the description of the tabernacle is specifically meant to call to mind the eden narrative and point forward to the consummation, the the ultimate goal to which this points. You, you think onyx as well, onyx stone on the high priest. Um, you read the Eden narrative, and there's onyx stone found there, and so all, all of this kind of intersects. Yes, it does. Yes, there will be those who say it's all just a coincidence. But, uh, I don't I don't think that's the case. No, I think it's designed. I think I yeah. think when we start to make these connections. It helps us to read scripture through a new set of lenses that, wow, this is intentional. This is meant, we're meant to make these connections. This isn't someone sucking it out of their thumb. And the the Bible is this beautifully told story that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit fits together wonderfully, even though there's lots of different authors and thousands of years, but it tells one grand narrative toward a climax Mm. that is absolutely glorious. I want to carry on with the tabernacle theme uh, in a moment. Um, so many questions I could ask, but while we're on the garden theme and the thorns in Genesis 3, I love the point you made about the significance of Jesus' crown of thorns. Mm-hmm. This, was a, this was a real little gem that I picked up from your book. Now, tell us about that. Well, I I forget where I heard it, to be honest. I think I heard it somewhere, and, and it's probably some preacher somewhere. But um, it, it, if you think about 
the consequence for the man, uh, the sin of the man is going to be thorns and thistles are going to grow up and you're going to work by the, the sweat of your brow. And you think, wow, in Eden, we went for a walk and we didn't get any burrs on our dogs and we we didn't have any thorns um, in the garden to have to pull out and, and have to wear gloves and this kind of thing. But that's a consequence of the fall into sin, this toil and the thorns. But Jesus, you know, by twisting together a crown of thorns and pressing it onto the head of the Son of God, the Roman rulers, the Roman centurions, they 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 symbolize more than they could have possibly understood is that the son of god jesus christ was bearing the curse of creation on his very head even as it was also a crown and so it's he really was a king they were mocking him as king of the jews not knowing that that he was a servant king who was ultimately going to raise from the dead seated at the right hand of the father but before he did all that he bore the curse on his very head so it's a symbol of um, the curse of creation being pressed onto his head, but it's also a symbol that also points to our sin being laid on his shoulders. So it's just a, it's a wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. Yes. Now, uh, on the subject of what well, we've dealt with the garden and the tabernacle, let's carry on with this theme. Follow the strand through, perhaps is the easiest way. How then does the tabernacle point to Jesus? Well, John tells us, right? Um, so at the first of all, the tabernacle, what is it? It's Yahweh dwelling, Yahweh's special presence dwelling among his people. So that's the function of the tabernacle. And it's a partial initial return to Eden because of those links with the Eden narrative. So that's why we have a tabernacle. And it also functions in the sacrificial system so that the sacrifices by the high priest um, as part of that covenant, you know. And then we get to John chapter 2. And John chapter one, sorry, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and our, our English translations say dwelled among us, but the the Greek word is tented among us, or we could say tabernacled Tabernacle. among us. Mm, mm. And it's the same Greek word, the same Greek root used to translate the word tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is God tabernacling among us. So Jesus is the tabernacle. And so, and if, if we think in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and then the temple replaced it as a more permanent structure, what happens in John 2? Um, Jesus says, is it John 2? I think so, yeah. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, build it again in three days. And John, and they didn't understand. And John says, but he was talking about the, the, te the temple of his body. So he's saying, I am the temple. My body is the temple. I am God walking among my people. And so I tabernacled among them. I am the temple. I am God walking among my people. I am the, uh, the temple. And you're going to destroy this temple. Like you're going to hang it on a cross. And in three days, the third day, I'm going to raise it from the dead. And so... Jesus is ultimately the presence of God with us. And it, so the tabernacle and the, and the temple are fulfilled initially in Jesus. But then what happens when Jesus ascends to heaven? He sends his Holy Spirit. And, and what are Christians? Temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we're temples all of a sudden because of what Christ has done for us. The Holy Spirit who 
powerfully dwelled in the temple and only a high priest could only go in once a year. And even then had to do all this kind of atoning work for his own sins and the sins of the people. And then once a year he could go in. Well, Christians, anyone who's in Christ has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They are temples. But that all points to a new heavens and new earth with no temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its, you know, the Lord God Almighty is its temple and its lamp is the Lamb. So we don't need sun or moon. We don't need temple because the entire um, earth is going to be a temple with God dwelling among his people. It's the ultimate and even better return to Eden. So that's yes. a whole lot of biblical theology. <laughs> no, well, let's let's just carry on with the with the strand. We've got a few minutes left. Oh, there's so many questions I could ask. Um, is he has which one to ask next? Really, the high priest. We've talked. We've started to talk about the high priest, the onyx stone, and the breastplate of the breastpiece of the high priest, and so on. In, can you just carry us through the Pentateuch and the biblical theology? Ian, in what sense is Jesus our great high priest? And how, how does the Day of Atonement, because we've mentioned the Day of Atonement, double-barreled question, sorry. Yeah, in yeah. what sense is Jesus our great high priest, and how does the Day of Atonement point to Jesus, point to Christ? Well, Hebrews four fourteen to 16 tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. He's the, the gadol gadol priest would be the Hebrew way of saying great high priest. And he's the... Um, he's the ultimate fulfillment of the high priest. So what's the high priest's job? He's... He's to mediate between God and the covenant people. And so Jesus is the new and better high priest, because unlike the high priest of the Old Testament, um, Jesus has no sin. So he doesn't need to atone for his own sin in order to enter the presence of God so that he could mediate for the people. He, um, he is sinless. And he also bore in himself our sin and he paid for it on the cross. So the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Hebrews tells us, um, the bloods and bull, the bloods of bull, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin. That was all anticipating Jesus. And the reason those old covenant saints were forgiven is it was an anticipatory sacrifices that ultimately were fulfilled when Jesus died for the sin of past, present, and future of of his own. And so. Jesus is the great high priest who's sinless, who's the ultimate mediator. He's also the sacrifice for our sins. And, and today he prays for us, right, at the right hand of the Father. So that's just a beautiful, wonderful thing. And the Day of Atonement was a once-a-year thing in the Old Testament. First of all, structurally, I, I got this from Michael Morales, and I quote him in the book. I give him footnotes in, and mention his name in the body of the text. I, I've really appreciated Michael's work on Pentateuch, especially Leviticus. He's got that New Studies in Biblical Theology series book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus. And I, I assign it to my Pentateuch students. One of my top five or 10 favorite books in the Old Testament, highly recommend it. But he makes the point that the Day of Atonement is structurally central to the Pentateuch. And I heard Stephen Dempster in his Dominion and Dynasty from the same series, A Theology of the Hebrew Bible. He makes the point that, you know, we could break up the Pentateuch as the Book of Moses. It's one, but it's also five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But we could also break it up in another way that um, before Eden, before, sorry, before Sinai, and then at Sinai from, Gen from Exodus 19, 1 till Numbers 
is it 1410? Something like that. Anyway, it's midway through, uh, or, you know, about 10 or 12 chapters into numbers. Um, that whole chunk is Sinai, Israel at Sinai. And then they depart from the wilderness of Sinai after that. And they're relatively equal chunks before Sinai, at Sinai, and after Sinai. And so you've got this middle chunk at Sinai, and that's where Yahweh is giving his Torah, his instruction, basically saying, now that I have redeemed you, you are my people, I have redeemed you. What I'm about to say has nothing to do with how to become my people. You are my people, but here's how to live as my people. And at the center of the Sinai narrative, we've got this day of atonement where the high priest atones for the people's sins once a year. And so that's just the, like a highlight um, highlight sacrifice for the people's sins. So it, it's just a wonderful picture ultimately of the alt, an anticipation of the ultimate sacrifice to come in Jesus Christ. Mm. Yes. Do you want to press any more on that or is that? Uh, no, that's probably we've got we've got about five minutes left. That's fine. I've got time to ask you a question about the book of Numbers, because uh, the book of Numbers is somehow gets left out when we think about the Pentateuch. Often, I find it's totally underrated. It is. I was going to ask you what's the significance of the book of Numbers, but in five minutes, brother, it's no. Why should we read the book of Numbers and stand in fear? There we are. I think that's a phrase you use. We should read the book of Numbers and stand in fear. Now, why should we do that? Yeah, well, before I do that, I'm going to plug two scholars. So um, my colleague at Heritage Seminary, Joel Barker, has just finished a commentary on numbers for the Kriegel. It's a preaching series, so how to preach numbers. No, and, yep. and my other colleague, Steve West, wrote the pastoral reflections portion. So that's, you know, hot off, you know, coming in the next couple of weeks, end of September from Kriegel Academic. Um, and then Michael Morales, I don't know when this is coming out, but... What's the IVP commentary series? It's not anyway. I should know. I should know. Um, Michael Morales just um, last I talked, I talked to him in November at a conference, and I, I believe he had finished writing or was close to finish writing his major commentary on numbers. So um, those are two solid scholars who are going to help us with numbers. But you think the the Torah, the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament they're all an essential part of the most foundational part of the entire Bible. So that's a first plug for numbers. But um, we should read numbers and stand in fear because these people who have been redeemed from Egypt, who have been given the covenants and who have been given these great promises and have been given the promise of land, um, their unbelief, um, their failure to trust in Yahweh's promises ultimately led to them not receiving in their generation the reward that had been promised. And so we should read numbers and stand in fear in that sense. And and that whole generation had to die in the wilderness. And then it was a new generation. Ultimately, um, they, they, re they received um, more instruction in Deuteronomy as Moses prepared them to enter the promised land. And then in the book of Joshua entered the promised land. But and there's all kinds of stuff that happens in numbers, as you know, that so then they, okay, we, we didn't believe Yahweh. We got these consequences. Now we believe him. We're going to go, but Yahweh doesn't go with them and they lose the battle. And, and so it is a lesson for us today just to watch that and stand in fear that don't fool around with, with God and his promises. We need to be people who trust him in the nitty gritty of every day. So and you kind of soak that in by osmosis by soaking in the entire Pentateuch and 
especially numbers. It's just a wonderful, it doesn't in the New Testament talk about these things are examples for us. So we will not, you know, have unbelief like they did. Is that in Corinthians, I believe? Yes. And uh, numbers, we should add, has a fantastic description of Israel camped around the tents uh, yeah. and, the ta- and the tabernacle. And uh, again, we get a picture of the, the camp as not only as a military camp, but as a form of tabernacle, I suppose. Yeah, whether they're on march, I got this from the ESV study Bible is the first place I saw this, that whether they're marching with, you know, carrying the tent pegs and all the components, or they're in camp all set up, the tabernacle, Yahweh's presence is at the center of the people and the people, the the tribes surround it. Mm. And it's just, again, a picture of Yahweh's dwelling among his people. And the placement of the tribes is very significant, and there's a little clue. So we'll just leave the we'll leave the podcast there. Look, yeah, Ian, we'll leave us hanging. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave leave people hanging. Um, look, this is a, a if you want a a good introductory book. This is not. I should say this is a scholarly book, but it's a book written. Is it? Can I say it's a book written for a popular audience? It's accessible. Yeah, it, very very accessible. It, yeah, it's written so that the the thoughtful Christian who's never been to seminary. You'll find it accessible. And by God's grace, some of the feedback I've got is just that, that that's understandable and um, hopefully deep enough for a scholar or a pastor or a seminary classroom. You know, there's, but I, I, there's no Hebrew in it. I, I, I I just try to make it as accessible as possible. I put on my pastor hat and kind of. It is, it is. I, look, I totally agree. I think it's a great introduction to, um, to the Pentateuch, those, and people get bogged down. You know, people, people, I've always had people come to say to me in churches, what do I do with Leviticus? <laughs> and I say, yes, well, that's a very good question. What do we do with Leviticus? But uh, this is a really helpful way through the Pentateuch. It's called, it's from Crossway, and it's called The Dawn of Redemption, The Story of the Pentateuch and the Hope of the Gospel. And the author has been talking to me. Ian Valencourt, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario in Canada. Thank you so much, Ian, for your time again, as always. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Ian, bless you, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's just been my pleasure, Brent. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.